would turn to Psalm 53, put a finger at Psalm 14, put another finger at Romans chapter 3. Let me begin by reading in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. I just want you to hear God's word. The Apostle Paul wrote, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of apse is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their speed are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you look at Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And then turn over to Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror, For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical to one another. There's a few little variations in between them. One thing that's, that's notable that you'll notice is that Psalm 53 is addressing God versus Psalm 14 is addressing the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name 
of God. Uh, but other than that, there's, there's very few references or differences between those two. And then we also see that Paul used that as part of his argument in Romans chapter 3 to show how all of mankind has actually turned away from God and rejects God. Now, the historical context of this, many commentators point to the similarities, or rather the, the parallel that this is with David's experience with Nabal. You remember Nabal? That was the husband of, of Abigail. The name Nabal means fool. When you look at the Hebrew word for fool, it's Nabal. And so a lot of commentators draw the point that David's actually thinking of Nabal here. So literally, the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. And if you look at the story of Nabal, he was a man that refused to help God's anointed one, David. He refused to assist him. And what happened to him is he he got struck dead out of fear. It's interesting because where there is no terror, they're terrified, as the text says. So you can kind of see the connection that this is to the background in terms of of it being connected to uh, Nabal. Now it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now a fool is one that is senseless, one that is godless, uh, one that is futile, one that lacks judgment. And the, the attribute that comes forth from this fool is that they're actually godless. And so when we think of a fool, we have to think of one that, that's not just uh, lacking knowledge, that's not necessarily what a fool means, but it's one who's senseless and rejects God. It's senseless to reject God. It is futile to reject God. It is complete insanity to reject God. That's why we would say that person's a fool. Now notice where it says that it's spoken in the heart. And so possibly outwardly, someone like Nabal, who would have been related to some way to the people of God, may outwardly profess, might outwardly have an association with God, but it's in the heart that it's revealed within the inward man that he rejects God. So inwardly, inside the heart of the person, he rejects God. And now what we have to see here is from the heart flows our actions, right? If I don't believe in God, there's going to be a corresponding uh, result or the action from that. And it's stated here in verse 1. So the fool is the one who says, there is no God, Well, what does the one that says there is no God do? Well, they're corrupt. They do abominable iniquity. And then there's none who does good. So this is applied to the one who says there is no God. So the one who says there is no God, Scripture makes very clear they are incapable of good. They can't do it. Now, I want you to notice what it says. Notice the tenses here. They are corrupt. That's a state of being. It's who they are. That is their nature, 
is a corrupted nature. And it's in totality that they are corrupt. If we had to put a theological term to this, what would we call it? Uh, Maybe think of something like total depravity or original sin. I think that we would think of that idea of an inherited, corrupted nature. It's one who is, their very nature itself is corrupt. So the one that says, there is no God, in nature then, who they are, their essence, fundamentally, they are corrupted. I would say we would call this something to original sin. When we think of original sin, original sin is not the first sin of Adam and Eve. Original sin is the inherited nature of that sinfulness. And so when we think of original sin, it is that inherited nature. We saw this in Psalm 51 in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, When we're brought into this world, we're not brought into this world really as a blank slate, but we're actually corrupt. We're born born that way. Sometimes it's called, as I mentioned, we might say total depravity. And that's that T on tulip. When we're expressing tulip of, of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. When you're looking at that, that tulip model, total depravity is, is speaking of the nature of mankind as totally depraved. Now that, that can lend itself to us thinking something like that we're, we're really, really bad. And that's not what it means. Because you've met people that reject God that are pleasant to be around. People that reject God are not all walking around as Joseph Stalin's. Or Adolf Hitler's. So it's not that they're as bad as they possibly can be. It just means that there's not a part of them that isn't corrupted, is what that means. R.C. Sproul said, and he said this with all of the tulip uh, letters, he said we should change it actually to be more, it, uh, it be more clear to state it as a, it's a radical corruption. And that's what this is being speaking of here. They are corrupt. This is what they are, they reject God. Now, because of that corruption, notice what happens and flows out of that corruption. So, the first part of the sentence says what they are. The next tells us what comes out of that is that they do abominable iniquity. So, what flows out of a corrupted state? Well, It's like with a bad tree, what comes out of a bad tree? Bad fruit. So what flows out of a corrupted state is going to be doing abominable iniquity. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, a very familiar verse that we quote often, where he says in chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Seems pretty clear what Paul is picking up there is that there is this corruption, and out of this corruption comes abominable iniquity. Is there a sin that's not abominable? It's interesting how this idea of abominable iniquity, Paul picks up out of that corruption that we follow the pleasures of this world. I was on Friday reading um, something by Charles Darwin, and it was interesting what he stated that, that really got me thinking of his worldview. He said something to the effect of mankind progresses by following his pleasures. Something to that effect. He's right. We don't progress, though, but he's right that we do follow that. Now, if we have a biblical worldview and we interpret what he was observing, what do we know? That we're following the corrupted nature and the pleasures of that corrupted nature living for ourselves. So when we look at those that are apart from God, totally, radically corrupted, They do abominable iniquity following the path and the course of this world, seeking their own pleasure. And he goes on then to say, there is none who does good. That's interesting because we all know here that there are people that we know that we have met that are are lovely people that we might say they have done Good. The reformers had this question put before them. If you say that nature is totally radically corrupt and people actually can't do good, then what about all of the good things we see in the world? The reformers said there there was civic goodness that would be produced in mankind. Why do people do altruistic things? Why do people do good things in society? Are they doing it for God? Are they doing it for God's glory? And they know that this is what pleases God, to love my neighbor and to love God? Is that their ultimate motivation? Or is there something else that leads them to produce these good works for the benefit of all of society? Well, here's the reality Even the pagan wants to live in a society that benefits them. And so if they're doing things that they might benefit, they're not doing it for God's glory and the love of neighbor, but ultimately they're doing it for their own glory. And so, yeah, you might see good things that take place, but when it comes down to it, what does Scripture say? They don't do good. 
Think about what Isaiah says. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, he qualifies deeds, he qualifies what we do, the good we do, are like a polluted garment. And it's interesting in our society today, what we see is we see many claim to the good, but we would look at it through a biblical worldview and actually say, that's not good, that's actually abominable iniquity. We live in a time that Isaiah pinpoints as where we call good evil and we call evil good. Let's just get down to it. The fool cannot do good. It's not within his capacity because whatever he does flows from a corrupted nature. They are corrupted. They can't do good. What they can do are things that might benefit others, but it's from a corrupted nature. It's not possible for them to do good. Let me, let me ask you this, if you struggle with this. Let's say someone was struggling with some particular vice, some particular struggle. Let's say they had an anger problem, or maybe they were an alcoholic or something like that. They're struggling. And they came to you, or they came to me, or whoever, and we helped them through that struggle. We helped them overcome their anger. We helped them overcome their alcoholism. But we did it in such a way where we, we never actually introduced them to Christ. Let me ask you, did we do that person good or did we do that person evil? Society might say a good thing took place, and, and in some ways, let's admit, we don't want people being alcoholics. But they were never, ever introduced to the one who sets them truly free, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The very thing that they needed most. So that we have to think through, when we think of civic virtues, and we applaud mankind for the good things, we can't forget what Scripture says. There is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. There is none who does good. If you go into verse 2, you see a worldwide assessment. And the question is, really, are there any believers? Verse 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Now, it's interesting. It says God looks down. That's obviously... Um, it's an it's, it's a illustration to give us a picture of God. It's, it's not as if God, I'll, I'll look down and see what's happening down there. It says he looks down on the children of man. Okay, here's your Hebrew quiz. Man is also a proper noun, a name, whose name means man, Adam looks down on the children of Adam and asks, are there any who seek after God? What's the expected answer to that rhetorical question? 
No. There's none who are seeking after him. Yes, if there's any who understand, that idea of understand means act prudently. Is there any that does good, that acts wisely? Is there any who seek after God? No. But here's the thing. All of them know there is a God. All of them have rejected God. Every human being is culpable for their rejection of God, whether they've ever seen one page of the Scriptures or not. In fact, we're told this. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known... So Scripture tells us there are some things that can be known about God. It's plain to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In these things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. R.C. Sproul said, you know, people always struggle well, what about, and bring up the hypothetical situation of, but what about the, the, the guy out somewhere in the middle of nowhere that's never, you know, the innocent guy out there? You know what the problem with that question is? That guy doesn't exist. There is no such thing as that innocent guy out there. All can see... By natural revelation, there is a God, and all reject that. They do not seek after what can be known by God. God has made himself known in nature. Now, what he has made known in nature is not enough to save someone. No one's saved apart from special revelation, which is his revealed will, the Bible. But it is to ask this question, what does man do with his knowledge of God. Man can observe from creation that God must be a benevolent, gracious creator because everything works. I'm living, I'm breathing. The Bible, I don't, I don't have to have the Bible to experience that. I need the Bible to explain to me why. But mankind rejects that. And so they do not use this knowledge. And so all of mankind universally rejects God. None of them seek after God. There is none who understand and walk wisely. Verse 3 repeats really what was in verse 1, but it adds this. They have all fallen away. That is that they have turned back. They have withdrawn. They have moved away from God. They have actively been disloyal to God. Now, this is the post-fall reality. What do I mean by post-fall reality? This is the result of the fall. All of mankind walks in opposition to God. Verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat up bread? 
and do not call upon God? Specifically, they are identified here as those that go after God's people. You think about David. David dealt with oppression constantly. Whether it was from Saul, or it was Nabal, whoever it was, there was those people that were constantly going after him. They were attacking him. But God's people always deal with that. Jesus says, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But there's also a reality that we have to, to recognize post-fall is this, is that there is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And because there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there will always be that animosity between these two groups. We, we are called to the ministry of reconciliation, of peace, of thankfulness, of love. And so when there's an opposition, it doesn't come from the Christian, does it? Shouldn't. You'd have to question whether they were Christians. It's always going to come from the seed of the serpent onto the church. There's always going to be that struggle where they eat up my people as they eat up bread. That is always going to be the battle. Now notice it says this, they do not call upon God, which means this, they have no need for God. Why do you call someone? Because you need something from that person. They don't need God. They don't seek God. They don't call upon God. It was very interesting that for many years, and I think it's kind of gone away, although it it seems to have morphed into different forms, is the seeker church movement. We want to create a church for the one that's seeking God. There, there, There is no one seeking God. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. They don't call upon God. You don't need God. Why is this? Well, they've rejected him and they're corrupted to their nature. Dead means dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5 tells us their state. They are in great terror where there is no terror. Now, you'll notice the rest of this verse, it tells us something about God's actions. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. And so this speaks of God actually destroying him in the latter half of the verse, that he rejects them. That is the, the final rejection, and that is actually to despise them. So the fool that is corrupt, that, that rejects God, does abominable wickedness, uh, it says that God eventually, he, he rejects them. And this is not him merely just passing over them, but this is his active wrath upon them. And so there's that active work of God spreading their bones, picture of future judgment. But there's, there's also this peculiar thing. They are in great terror where there is no terror. It's like being afraid of your shadow. It's like to jump for every leaf that falls behind you. That's, that's the picture there. But God does this to them. Look over at Joshua 10.10. You see an example of this. And you can find numerous examples like this in the Old Testament. Where there's really no terror, 
God strikes them terror into them. It says in verse 10 of, of Joshua 10, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. They weren't afraid of Israel until God struck them terror inside them, where there was no terror. I think that's a beautiful statement that we see here. It follows the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the woman and the oppression of the seed of the serpent upon the seed of the woman. It brings us down low and think, we we, we automatically think that we're persecuted, which is true, and it happens. This next verse tells us something great, though. In verse 5, that actually, who's in control? God is. Those that have rejected God, that do not seek after God, that would oppress God's people and eat them up as if they eat bread, God strikes terror into their soul, and he will one day scatter their bones. I think that that would have been a great comfort for David as he wrote these words. I think these are words of great comfort for the church, to us to know, the persecuted church to know especially. But those that, that torture them, the Lord's going to strike fear into them. Here and later. Verse 6 ends with our hope. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. It came out of Zion. You shall name him Emmanuel, for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. This is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Not only did salvation come, but salvation is also coming. Our great hope is that the Savior came, and our great hope is that the Savior will come again. And I think if you read Romans 11, it's hard to deny that there will be a mass and gathering of the Jews of Jacob and of Israel coming together when the Lord Jesus Christ does return. What joy of salvation is. That is our hope, is that in the Lord we have experienced salvation. And what... If you had to categorize Psalm 53 and say, what's this about? I think we would all walk away saying, well, this is about the depravity of man. What on earth do you do with a doctrine like that? Okay, we know it's true. We receive it as true. It's important to know because God reveals it to us. It helps us to know mankind and know the doctrine of man from verses like this, but... How does that help us? Let's let's kind of meditate upon this tonight. The doctrine of total depravity. 
What are we told about the heart? The heart is wicked above all things. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. In Christianity, what are we given? New heart. What else are we given? New mind. New desires. And those are all synonymous for the same thing. Paul just simply says it like this. You're a new creation in Christ. We are a new creation but even though we're a new creation, doesn't God still have to tell us to do certain things because we're not doing it? Enter in the Apostle Paul in every one of his epistles. Every one of Paul's epistles is bringing some sort of corrective to the church, doctrinally or ethically, and usually both. Why? He calls them brothers. He calls them saints. He says that they are set aside in Christ. He says, you are a new creation. If that's so, why does he have to tell us to do it? Why does God have to tell us to do that? You see, knowledge of total depravity teaches us something very important about our old nature. I believe it's dead. Scripture says it's dead. Scripture says we're a new creation. The old man is gone. The new has come. But we still live in this flesh. And it doesn't take long for us to think back in our memories or face new temptations that all of a sudden affect how we think. The doctrine of total depravity is an abiding reminder for us that we are to never lean upon our own understanding. So what, what practical use does total depravity have for me as a Christian? That is really easy for me to slip back into my corrupt ways. And I need, I need Jesus. I need, I need God's grace that I do not slip back into those things. And to not trust my heart. But rather, recognize, yes, I've been made new, I've been given a new heart, but I'm still in this flesh and I'm still waiting for Christ to take me home. And until He takes me home, I'm going to still be actively dealing with sin. And I've been set free from sin but I still struggle with sin. I must filter all things through what? God's Word. Total depravity reminds the Christian that it's God's Word you must filter every thought through. Do not trust your heart. The doctrine of total depravity also reminds us to throw ourselves to the feet of Jesus, always. Why? It's because the remnants of my old life creep in constantly, and I am weak. I need Jesus. I need His grace. And there's something else. It guides us with evangelism. It guides us with evangelism because the gospel is what? Another word for the gospel, or words for the gospel, is good news. The good news is good news in light of, of what? Bad news. It's in and, and the doctrine of total depravity teaches us something about the state of man. 
that they were enslaved to sin. And they actually cannot do good, though they might call something good. Scripture tells us they actually can't do good. So what are they living? They're living enslaved to sin. Paul captures this. In Romans 6.20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin. What can break the power of sin? Well, Paul tells us, he says that we're set free from sin. And we become not slaves to sin, but slaves to God. We become slaves to righteousness. And he says the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. So so the doctrine of total depravity informs our evangelism that there has to be a statement of the bad news that you're a sinful person. You're under God's wrath. You're going to hell and eternally will be under God's wrath unless you repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reality for you. That's the bad news. The good news is, though, that by faith, the Lord Jesus will save you. And that sin problem that you have, that you know, Jesus sets you free from that as well. Jesus actually breaks the bondage of sin in a person's life. Total depravity also teaches us this. That person's not seeking God. But you know God. And you might be the means that God uses in their life to introduce them to Christ. That totally corrupted person may be an elect child of God. And you're going to be the means that they receive Christ. But they're not going to seek Christ apart from hearing the gospel. Because it is... The gospel that is the power of salvation. So total depravity is not just a doctrine that helps us explain the nature of man. The doctrine of total depravity is a helpful and practical doctrine that we can use and study for our lives and how we live as Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that by grace we are saved through faith. And for we know, as we have seen, that it's not of our works, for our works are, are polluted garments. We don't have enough good works. We don't have any good works that would merit salvation. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his perfect life lived you have shown us in your word this doctrine of, of original sin or total depravity, uh, the nature of man as we come into this world, the children of Adam. And it helps us to think through how we approach others and how we live our own life and how we need to depend upon Christ. I pray that we would take these truths to heart and would reflect upon them and see how they lead us to share the love of Christ with others. I pray that, Father, that would be our desire 
is for the world to know you. We know that the world will come to know you through the preaching of the gospel. So we, may that be our great desire, is to share this life-saving, life-giving message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.